0: There's a guy named John Schaefer too. He trained a handful of Olympians like Apollo Ono. Um, He trained some NFL guys, but similar scenario. He's got this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. These guys who are all worth millions and the best athletes in the world go down to this guy's basement where he's just got this wacky setup, but it is like the, it's like the most hardcore training I've ever seen. And these guys are just unbelievably fit.
1: Welcome to the Barbend Podcast, where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by barbend.com. Today, I'm talking to health and fitness journalist Michael Easter, a contributing editor at Men's Health Magazine and journalism professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Michael is one of the fitness space's most prolific writers of in-depth profiles, covering the people, trends, and breakthroughs that keep this industry moving forward. He joins the show to talk about his unlikely road to teaching in a respected university while also balancing the challenges of his own research and writing. He's got some of the coolest in-the-trenches stories in fitness journalism, and you definitely don't want to miss out on what he has to say. I do want to take a second to say that we're incredibly thankful that you listen to this podcast, so if you haven't already, be sure to leave a rating and review of the Barbend podcast in your app of choice. Now let's get to it. Michael, thanks so much for joining us today. I need to ask, should I be calling you Professor Easter or, or Michael Easter? You wear a lot of different hats and one of those is in the classroom. So, so what do you prefer? I go with Michael, even with
0: students when they come and dress me formally, Professor Easter. You know, I'm I'm more a Michael person. I, I like keeping things a little bit informal. I don't, not a huge fan of titles.
1: So see, that's that's power that I should never have because I would wield it so irresponsibly. I'd be Professor to to ev- to everyone. I'd be like, no, 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 it's Professor David or Professor Tao at like restaurants or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what do you so I first came across your work in fitness journalism, which is what I really want to focus in today in on today, but you are also a professor. You are actively in the classroom, even if that's not what you go by casually. So tell us a little bit about if you don't mind your your role as professor michael easter
0: yeah it's it's interesting, so I was on staff at Men's Health for I think six or seven years, and I'd just been kind of looking for something a little bit different, just had been in the building a little too long, you know, and I'd always had this dream that like, oh, being a professor where, you know, I could teach on one hand and then write on the other hand sounded awesome. Now, I didn't have a PhD, so that seemed like a long shot, but um, my resume happened to land on the desk of someone at UNLV, specifically when they were looking for a professor of health journalism. And it was just like perfect timing. Uh, I flew to Vegas and I started in the job like a month later. So I've been here ever since. So part of the job, as I said, is, is teaching. It's in the classroom. I'm in the journalism department. So I do a lot of different classes, but I always teach a health journalism class. And then the other flip side of it is continuing to write for different publications and, and books and stuff like that. So,
1: yeah. I, that's a very specific uh, I guess, professorship to hold or position to hold, professor of health journalism. It's awesome to to hear that. Um, is it something where, you know, students are coming to you or coming into that program and they're like, hey, I want to be a health and, and wellness writer or a health and fitness writer? Or are they kind of taking one of your classes or interacting with you on their steps to becoming, you know, uh, maybe more of a mainstream journalist or they're still doing some experimenting?
0: Yeah, I think it's definitely more the latter. I mean, I feel like so many... Kids in college these days—it's like you you pick a major and then you rarely end up in uh, in the job of your major, you know. So I definitely get a lot of kids who come in and they love health, they love wellness, they read men's health or women's health or barbend or whatever it is, and so they have a ton of passion there and they're just psyched to be in the classroom. And then for other students, it's kind of like, well, this class was at a time, and I need at a certain time, and I needed the uh, the credit, so I took it. And sometimes those kids get turned on to it. And other times they go, well, this isn't what I want to write about, but you know, thanks for helping me figure that out. So
1: what are some assignments that you're giving students who might be touching health journalism for the first time?
0: The first assignment we do is reading a study and write about it, writing about it in 200 words or less. So when I was at men's health, one of the first uh, gigs that, that we would get is we had to do these bulletin pages in the magazine. So you take new breaking study, You have to write it up for magazine space constraints. Uh, It has to be clever. You have to have interviewed the researcher. It has to have the main finding, uh, the mechanism, and also some advice for the reader. So that is the first thing that we do because uh, I had a boss at Men's Health who said, if you can write bulletins well, you can write this entire magazine well. So that's just like that training of reading the study, Getting, getting everything nice and tight, I think, is the best thing we do in that class. And then from there, we do some stuff that would mimic you know, writing for online versus print. We do a feature at the end of it, um, that kind of stuff.
1: I have two follow-up questions to that. Not to stick on this point for too long, but because I find it interesting. <clears throat> 200 words. First off, it takes more than 200 words to describe that assignment. Then, then 200 words. I think a lot of people underestimate how difficult it is to write concise wellness journalism, especially on studies, because you can go on and on and on and on. What are some tips or what's some advice you might give to your students about how to keep that sort of writing concise?
0: It's a lot of shit. Well, I think that we should. Uh, I should start this answer by saying the first time I turned in uh, to my editor at Men's Health, my page of bulletin, so it would have been about... A 1,000 words because there are five studies on it. I got back 2,000 words of edits. So <laughs> this, it's, it's very, very difficult. A lot of it is just um, trying to think, what can I shave out here? Uh, how can I say this quicker and simpler? Um, a lot of times people tend to use five words uh, when they could have used just one to get the same point across. And the other big part of it too is, a lot of times students will read the study and they'll take some jargony word because they don't really understand it. So they just toss it in there, you know, and it's like, do you, do you know what this means? And they're like, no, it's like, well, neither will the reader. So we're going to have to figure out a way to distill that. And that comes with, you know, going back and forth with the researcher a lot of times. And and sometimes the researcher gives, you know, pushback and says, no, you can't describe it like that because, you know, my colleagues will read it and they'll think I don't know what I'm talking about. And it's like, well, this is going out to a lot more people than, you know, just your colleagues. So we have to have it make sense for the reader.
1: My second follow-up question to what you said about kind of the, the general curriculum and, and types of assignments, uh, it ends with a feature. So your, your students are basically working toward writing a, what would be a magazine feature or the equivalent for the class. What are some of the more interesting topics or features that have been submitted for the class?
0: That's a good question. I'm trying to think. I have I have a few different classes, so I trying to think about who did what um, we get a lot where people will sort of embed themselves with some of the teams that we have at UNLV so that's always fun because as long as they can it, it gives them a chance to sort of flex that muscle in terms of how do you write about a character how do you use quotes um, by far the most interesting one ever is this girl uh, so I live in las vegas which is you know this story will start to make more sense once you keep that in context this girl uh had a colleague who oh, <laughs> she got uh these like backroom silicone butt injections okay so um, this just went really weird i'm sorry but it, it is interesting so she basically investigated this whole like black market uh, cosmetic surgery happening in Las Vegas that a lot of times people who were in uh, the service industry were getting. So, you know, really high end nightclub waitresses and things like that were getting, but it's completely dangerous obviously. And it was just one of those where it was like, Oh my God, like this is a crazy story. The fact that she was able to get it and sort of get in there and speak to the people who were actually doing this was just unbelievable um that's one i'll always remember also for its weirdness you know when she has to pitch it in class too you can imagine how sort of awkward but also hilarious it was it's like so i have this friend who blah 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 and blah blah and you're just like oh my god this just keeps getting weirder and weirder <laughs>
1: that's so fascinating I can, I can see the lineup of pitches like i want i'm gonna do a profile on the the basketball team captain and i'm gonna profile the strength and conditioning coach okay hear me out yes Backroom, but injections and actually the thing is that kind of journalism can really help people and improve lives if people read those stories they might think twice about getting a a black market plastic surgery or cosmetic surgery procedure so we we kind of giggle at some of this stuff but it it can be hugely impactful on people's lives
0: exactly and i think the woman who was doing it doing it got shut down um in part because the student had put some light on it so i mean
1: you know it, it Journalism is impactful. It's, it's not all glute workouts and six-pack abs in fitness, journal, in fitness and wellness journalism. It can, yeah, it can yeah. make a difference. Um, well, let's talk about your career, which is still very much ongoing. It's not like you left fitness journalism to become a professor. You just kind of embedded yourself more in it. You were at Men's Health for a number of years. You've written for a ton of different outlets. I can't even like, list them all off, so I won't even try. Um, but what are some of the more interesting assignments, people, and events that you've covered over the years that our listeners you know, might really want to sink their teeth into? You know, after they're done, they'll look in the show notes. They'll be like, I really want to go in-depth on, on that, read that article, or read that profile that Michael did.
0: Yeah, for sure. I think that... Um... I got some traction at Men's Health because my sort of shtick, if you will, is to find an interesting person in an interesting place doing something interesting. I mean, that's that's all of journalism. So I just kind of had a knack for finding characters that were often overlooked. So, for example, I think probably a lot of your readers might know who Dan John is. Hmm.
1: But we've had, it. we've had him on the podcast. He's a yeah. good, he's a good friend of the brand. Perfect. Perfect.
0: Yeah. um, I mean, I think your readers are probably a little more in depth and like into the fitness stuff than a men's health reader is, you know, we're kind of like a, just a broader audience, but, you know, going into his garage where he invented the goblet squat more or less. And it's just a hilarious little gym where it's like one of the most innovative gyms in the country is in Dan John's garage. And, you know, while I was there and hanging out and training with him, you had MLB players dropping by. You also had like 60 year old moms, you know, and it's all just happening in this garage. Um, there's a guy named John Schaefer too, who I came across. I don't know if you've, you've heard of him, but he trained, he trained a handful of Olympians like Apollo Ono. Um, he trained some NFL guys, but similar scenario. He's got this farmhouse in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. These guys who are all worth millions and the best athletes in the world go down to this guy's basement where he's just got this wacky setup, but it is like the, it's like the most hardcore training I've ever seen. And these guys are just unbelievably fit. And he is, I mean, he's about as wide as a barn door, like a former power lifter type, you know? So just getting in those really surprising places with surprising people, I think, um, is always what I've been a fan of trying to think of some others. Uh, I get a lot of emails about one I did, uh, about the concept of fitness age, essentially, how does fitness impact the aging process, different stages, and, you know, what are the real effects of fitness on general health? So, I get a lot of emails from crazy places about that one, you know, people from, like, Bulgaria will be like, how do I use this in my life, you know,
1: so... Bulgaria has a has a rich strength culture in history, so something that our, our yeah. listeners might be familiar with. I do want to talk about a recent. It's relatively recent. We're recording this a few months after you had a cover story regarding uh, the, basically the kind of the new faces or new old faces of CrossFit, and it was a kind of a dual profile on both Eric Rosa, now the CEO and owner of CrossFit, and Dave Castro, who's the head of training at CrossFit and was CEO for like 14 minutes over the summer after Glassman stepped down and b- before Rosa came on. You coined a term in that profile that... Okay, and if, if, if for reference, if no one's ever interacted with Dave Castro personally or, or in person, he can be a bit of a tough egg to crack. Mm-hmm. He's got a little bit of a shell. He's not going to be the most open with everyone at the beginning. But you coined a term that I know Castro really likes because he's been posting about it. I believe it was Fitness Picasso. Yeah. What was it what tell us about the process if you don't mind of profiling these two figures in CrossFit during a time or right after a time that the brand had gone through its most tumultuous period by far. Were you in were you embedded with them? What was you know how did you approach them with the pitch and how kind of how did that end up coming to fruition?
0: This one came together very uh slowly uh, interestingly enough i had reached out to dave last year maybe around this time could have even been earlier and just said hey we want to do a story on you and your process of creating these games workout be- workout because he's so creative like he pulls ideas from all these different disciplines um he's exceedingly bright he's exceedingly well read um well studied and so he essentially uh all this learning he does in his everyday life gets pulled into these games workouts very, very interesting. So then, uh, the whole Glassman thing happens, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, he's the CEO. There's new leadership, and I just think to myself, he's never going to talk to me at this point, you know, because um, the story had kind of been rolling slowly. Um, go ahead, though.
1: I was going to say, and CrossFit's all, has long been known as kind of a walled garden, right? If you're kind of in on the outside from a media perspective you know, they weren't always the most receptive to to pitches or sometimes you'd get kind of like a, a terse email if you wrote something about them that they didn't like. So access is not something that was always open. And I think we should contextualize that for people who aren't in fitness journalism. Yeah,
0: yeah, for sure. Um, totally fair statement. Uh, to add a little bit more context, I think potentially why Dave uh, said yes to this story, even after the Glassman thing, is that I had profiled Glassman Maybe three years ago. And it was for an issue that was about uh, people who had most changed fitness over the last three decades. And so we included Glassman, and it was about his impact on fitness. And now I think that because CrossFit has generally, as you just said, they're kind of a little head buddy with media. Um, I think they've gotten a bad rap in mainstream media. So I think when I came in and, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, with Greg, I went to one of their uh, CrossFit health seminars and I think I was just generally fair, but the, the piece didn't have a ton of criticisms. It it at least contextualized most of the criticisms that the average person would have known. And so Greg was like, Oh, this is refreshing. Um, so fast forward. I think that's why Dave, thought okay this person isn't just trying to do a hit job on crossfit like i think crossfit whether validly or not thought some pieces about them before had been so anyways yeah go up to uh drive up to the ranch middle of a pandemic uh it was it was very apocalyptic because this is when uh, all the wildfires were happening in california double whammy yeah so i like drive up there it's all smoky it's like the world is ending and hung out with uh, Dave on the ranch for a couple of days. Um, we, it was when he was uh, designing the workouts for the games uh, that occurred there with the five athletes. So we, um, you know, we rocked the course that was the trail run course or whatever with his dog. And we just hung out and um, did Castro things. We, you know, shot some guns, went and went and had lunch, all that kind of stuff. And um, it's interesting because, you know, to your point, I think he comes off a little bit cold, but when I got there, that was not the guy that I found. It's like, he was very welcoming. He was very open. Um, we had long conversations and he would, he would be pretty open. And, you know, sometimes he would say things that he was like, you know, actually don't quote me on that. And I'm fine with that, you know? So, but I thought, uh, he was more open than I expected. He's a good guy.
1: For context, I kind of led Michael along a little there. I will say that you know maybe CrossFit's prior relationship, because I think a lot has changed with the media, especially mainstream media. Maybe some of that was warranted because frankly there were some hit pieces put out on CrossFit that didn't have a lot of weight or really evidence uh, evidence behind them. So you know, had I been, and it is also worth just dis- disclosing, I was a paid media consultant and writer for CrossFit for a period of time. Had I been in their shoes and I had a little bit of insight into that, just still kind of an outsider's perspective, yeah, I'd be wary, I'd be wary as well. As anyone should be if a journalist ever calls you up and says, hey, I want to profile you. You should, you should think about it before just automatically saying yes. And the other thing I'll say is that I do think Castro's reputation is one of uh, being a, maybe a, a bit eccentric and potentially being a little bit cold. But he, he shows his work right he is he is someone who will do things like he'll give games workout clues and people are always like to joke oh it has nothing to do with the actual workout but it is actually cool insight into his inspiration and i don't know a, a lot of other event organizers in strength sports or fitness who will give books as a gift to the athletes Because he thinks it will enrich the experience, not only that they're going through as competitors, but also kind of getting something to work on mentally, in addition to the crazy arduous physical tasks that he'll give folks.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, I I see him more as, I think sometimes CrossFit can become someone's life, as can any hobby. And I think really Dave approaches it more as... This is something that's part of my life, but isn't my life. He's a lot uh, broader and deeper, I think, than people might expect. You know, he's got a he's got a crazy background. Uh, Like I said, wicked smart and just pretty insightful guy. I also understand why, you know, some people butt heads with him, but that's cool, too. That's part of his personality.
1: People who get a lot done and have a big impact, especially in the fitness space specifically, they're going to butt heads against no one is no one who's done big things in fitness is completely non-controversial. That is yeah. that is my opinion. Exactly. What are some myths and misconceptions you think people have about fitness content, and specifically maybe about the kind of fitness journalism that you do?
0: That's a good question. Um, so we had this rule. Uh, at Men's Health, that you know, it's called the eighty percent rule, and that is that uh, whatever we write should apply to eighty percent of our readers. Now, <laughs> readers are all different kinds of people, right? <laughs> so, I, I tend to uh, I tend to think of um, there being sort of different camps of of people in fitness, and there's you know the average uh, person who picks up Men's Health for a flight, and they just kind of want to get a little bit more fit. They don't really know what they're doing. Uh, And then you have people who are like people who would comment on fitness boards on Reddit who are super into fitness, you know? So I think uh, trying to give content that works for both of those people, and there's also a lot of people in between too, right, Uh, can be tricky. So sometimes, um, you know, from the more hardcore fitness, they'll be like, "Ah, this stuff isn't good enough. It doesn't work. Um, And then on the other hand, you have people who are like, this stuff is too hard you know, so trying to like, please every reader, I think is impossible. So it's really a balancing act of how do we do the, the most good for the most people we can. Um, in terms of another myth, I think that it's tricky covering studies, especially in nutrition, I think the most, um, you know, that's part of my job. I've written a lot about nutrition, because I mean, it's mostly epidemiological research, where they're just you know, pulling big groups of people. And if you look at a lot of that research, it's not really replicable. Like it doesn't, you know, they don't make the same findings time and time again. And I think there are a lot of valid criticisms to it. So uh, I guess the myth would be, I'm trying to think what the myth is there. I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. I guess I'm just saying that, you know, sometimes there can be some um, problems with sort of the horse race of covering study after study. Uh, when it comes to nutrition and so you know for my work uh i'm at the point now where i can sort of zone out or zoom out and um try and give a bigger overall picture in a greater context you know so um i think sometimes readers get angry because they're like well this one study said and this is in health journalism in general like last month you told me coffee is going to kill me and this month you're giving me the study that says coffee is good for me what's going on um That's the problem with the research,
1: you know. Coffee is the one. You're not the first person to bring that up on this podcast about the conflicting research in coffee and about how journalists, writers will get all researchers will get all sorts of letters and emails. And I think coffee is an example people give because people are very protective of their coffee. Yeah. Like if you if, if you tell me something bad about coffee, I'm going to lose my personal objectivity for I'm going to lose my objectivity for a second. I'm going to come at you personally and be like, look, look man, uh, <laughs> or, or look look lady here. Here's here's what I think. Um, so that's a pretty good example and I'm glad you brought that one up. Let's talk about your bucket list in journalism and profiles. You've done some of the more interesting profiles and and honestly I'm you know, I I should I'm losing some journalistic credibility here when I say to the person I'm interviewing, I really personally enjoy your writing. So, I should give that disclaimer as well what are some bucket list items or profiles that you have that you'd really like to do in the fitness and health journalism space but maybe haven't gotten the chance yet
0: pandemic notwithstanding pandemic notwithstanding um that's interesting i have a few up my sleeve uh they're part of a book proposal i'm putting together though so i'm not going to reveal those maybe maybe later um fair enough but in terms of back on Yeah. In terms of stories for, for men's health um, and other magazines, I'm just a huge fan of sort of quirky, interesting characters, characters that are maybe a little rough around the edges. Like, I don't, I don't want to profile the the clean cut guy who's going to give me the company line. Um, You know, I've had to, I've had to write about a few sort of NFL guys that are really media polished and it's just the most boring thing that could ever happen. And it's not really serving the reader either. Um, so I like the people who are a little rough around the edges. That said, one profile <laughs> that I've really wanted to do uh is if your listeners are at all into the UFC. I'm like mildly into the UFC. I think it's I think it's pretty cool, we, you, you know.
1: You we, can't do fitness journalism without at least getting a little bit interested in that part of things.
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah. So the Diaz brothers. Uh yeah, those two I love them because they're super rough around the edges. I mean, these are like kids that grew up fist fighting. They're also, their training is really interesting because it's so different than what so many UFC fighters do. They're super into uh, triathlons and this is why they have such an engine. Like they can go so long in a fight and they just square people down. And when they're talking shit, they actually mean it. It's not an act like, and they're vegan. Um, They're also huge advocates for marijuana, which I think is funny. So their whole shtick is like they get super baked and just go on these forever long mountain bike rides, which is against all like what any strength coach in the UFC would tell you to do. But here they are, they've, you know, they've, had, they've been ranked number one. Like They're just fascinating cats. So I'd like to spend some time with them and, and do a profile them at some point.
1: That, uh, I, I am not condoning the use of any substances besides maybe creatine, protein powder, and vitamin D on this podcast. But what I'll say is um, you're not going to meet a person every day whose idea of a good time is getting baked and then going and doing something very difficult
0: yeah yeah i'm with you i mean i don't i don't touch any substances at all um but i do think that there's something really fascinating about that um just that whole probably their ability to just zone out and like just not feel pain for an extended period of time you know to put themselves in that sort of pain cave and just marinate there like i find that uh You know, as interesting and fascinating as like the crossfit athletes and the strength athletes can be, something about a person who does something like an ultra marathon and just—I mean—they're on a different plane psychologically. The ability to just sit there with your thoughts for hours and hours, traveling across terrain—that is a human whose brain is wired differently. Uh, So it's good to talk to all sorts of athletes. I guess is the message there for journalists.
1: Have there been any? people you've profiled who have really surprised you like what what you got was so much different than the than the notion you had going into it you always try and keep an open mind in journalism and i think your profiles and writing reflects that but you still have some preconceived notions no matter what
0: uh yeah i mean because i know your readers are into crossfit i had to go down after ben smith won the crossfit games i think that was maybe 15 or something
1: 2015 Uh,
0: me and this uh, video guy from Men's Health, we get in this rental car and we drive all the way down to Delaware to their gym. And um, he's fittest man on earth or whatever the correct terminology is. So I go in there expecting to see. However, I pictured him, I had fittest man on earth. And Ben Smith looks like a fifth grade teacher or like the guy who would stock shelves at like the grocery store. Like he's just, he's, he doesn't look like this crazy, crazy fit dude. Like you just wouldn't expect him. He's very nice very humble, very quiet. And then he gets in the gym and it's just like, Oh my God, like this guy's insane. You know, it's just not what you would expect. Like I feel like you see a Frazier and you're like, that guy is a killer and you don't really get that with Ben Smith, but he is, it's very subtle. You know,
1: I I got to spend a little time with Ben Smith uh, in, in the years before he won the CrossFit games training at his gym. I believe it's in Virginia beach, CrossFit Krypton in Virginia beach. Um, his whole family's into CrossFit. His dad, I think one time when I was there, maybe it was like right after, deadlifted 600 pounds, like his you know, 50-something-year-old dad. Very talented family. His brother, Alex Smith, also a games athlete. And I've heard people describe Ben Smith as kind of CrossFit's Batman because he's not... He. It's just kind of like there's like a little bit of mystery there and not like in a nefarious way, not in a sneaky way, but he's never going to just... He's never going to come out and tell you like... This is what I'm going to do, or I'm the fittest man in the world, or I'm one of the fittest people in history. He's like you're not going to hear that if you meet this guy. You don't know anything about him. He's not going to bring that up in conversation. Amen.
0: Yeah, yeah, you nailed it. Um, and I think some of these surprises happen too when uh, profiling athletes. And there was one, and I, I, I forget the guy's name, but he was an NFL guy, uh, a wide receiver who was pretty famous. He was on the Broncos for a while. Um, Apologies for not being able to remember his name, but anyways, he had this crazy long arrest record and I mean, it was just known as a pain. And so I'm thinking, Oh, this is not going to go well. And just, you know, my cell phone rings calls me up. He's like, yo, it's me. And well, and we just end up talking, like just shooting the shit for like an hour, just the nicest guy ever. It's just, I, I feel like a lot of times, you know, when you read a lot of stuff about people that sort of clouds your vision and, and what to expect. And, and then you talk to them and oftentimes you're surprised.
1: Well, speaking of nice guys to talk to, Michael Easter, you're definitely that. If people want to follow along with the work you're doing, uh, maybe this, this book proposal that you're alluding to, the final results of that, whenever that's kind of publicly available, where's the best place for people to follow along with you and your work?
0: Yeah, I actually have a book coming out in May. Uh, maybe we could talk about that down the road. But uh, in the meantime, uh, you can find me at eastermichael.com. And then I'm on Instagram at michael underscore Easter. And yeah, shoot me an email. I always uh, write back and I'm happy to chat with anyone.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you.